Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. For a little bit, you're listening to 3CR, Melbourne's community radio. We're 8.55 on the AON dial. It's now time for Keep Left, the program of Victorian Labor College. In the studio is John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. Now, John, you're going to talk about... Whitlam's the Canberra coup. This, yes, the Canberra coup of 1975. This Wednesday, which was Remembrance Day, marked the 40th anniversary of the dismissal of Gough Whitlam's Labour government in 1975. The death this past year of two of the three main protagonists in the dismissal gives this anniversary even more significance. Gough Whitlam died in October 2014, aged 98, and Malcolm Fraser died in March 2015, aged 84. It's hard to refer to the LP government of those years without emphasising Whitlam himself. He was a formidable political leader, and at least in the early days of his government, he made many decisions without reference to his cabinet. Together with his first deputy, Lance Barnard, he ruled in what is referred to as a domvirate, a two-man rule, although Whitlam was obviously the main man. Many in the Labour Party have tended to put Whitlam on a pedestal, a view which appears unlikely to change any time soon. And until the day he died, Whitlam constantly referred to my government, so he certainly viewed himself in a presidential light. As for Fraser, in the 70s and 80s, he was loathed by left-wingers as the epitome of an arch-conservative. Some of us will remember the bumper sticker on cars which summed this up. Do you remember that one? Which one? What did I... It's a bit rude. Tammy has one and Malcolm is one. <laughs> no, I missed that, Jim. I can't remember that one. Yeah. yeah, by the time he died, Malcolm Fraser had actually moved to the left of the ALP in many regards. Just last year, he put out a book, and it's quite a good book, actually read all through it, a book called Dangerous Allies, which strongly criticised the ANZUS Alliance, something nobody in the current ALP would dare to do. Both men did appear to be far more imposing than the Labour and Liberal leaders of today, though that would be too hard. Uh, Dead easy, I would think. When the Australian Labour Party was voted into power in 1972, the country was overripe for change. The Liberal National Coalition had been in power for over 23 years, and the social and political changes which had transformed many other Western countries hadn't had the same impact on Australia. And under a period of three years, changes of actual importance were made. Australian troops were pulled out of the war in Vietnam and conscription was ended. Diplomatic relations were established with China. The death penalty was scrapped and so too were the racist Australian immigration policy. Free higher education was implemented. Sewage was brought in for many working class suburbs, especially in the west of Melbourne and Sydney. And if you knew what it was like before the sewage, uh, that was a big deal. Perhaps most importantly, though, Medicare, or Medibank, saw the introduction of universal health care for Australians. In that period, people got a taste of socialistic policies, and certainly amongst the majority of the working class, this was very popular. The Whitlam government was voted back in 1974. However, they had also made some very powerful enemies. Some Labour Party ministers rightly condemned the US bombing of Vietnam as corrupt and barbaric. 
Frank Snap, at the time a CIA officer in Saigon, said, quote, We were told the Australians might as well be regarded as North Vietnamese collaborators. <laughs> That's a slight exaggeration. Maybe. Just a slight. Willem himself questioned the American spy base at Pine Gap near Alice Springs, telling the US ambassador, quote, If you try to screw us, Pine Gap will become a matter of contention. Victor Marchetti, the CIA officer who helped set up Pine Gap, reportedly told the journalist John Pilger, quote, This threat to Pine Gap caused apoplexy in the White House. A kind of Chile-style coup was set in motion. The reference here was to the CIA-backed military coup which ousted the democratically elected leftist Salvador Allende in Chile in 1973. In Australia, the actual military were not required, although they were kept on standby. Instead, the Governor-General Sir John Kerr, who had originally been appointed by Whitlam, was used. Kerr was referred to by CIA operatives as Our Man Kerr. According to Jonathan Quitney of the Wall Street Journal, the CIA paid for Kerr's travel and built his prestige. Kerr went to the CIA for money. I don't know how much he needed. It. It's been a pretty <laughs> as good much as they've got, I would say. <laughs> it's pure greed. The British Secret Service also plotted against Whitlam. Whitlam himself would later say, quote, The Brits were decoding secret messages coming into my Foreign Affairs Office. Senior Labour Minister Clyde Cameron backed this claim, saying, We knew MI6 was bugging our cabinet meetings for the Americans. The old imperialists and the new imperialists had decided long before November 1975 that they'd had enough of Whitlam's reforms. He also made an enemy of another powerful figure, Rupert Murdoch. This is 40 years Mr. ago. Evil. <laughs> 40 years ago, eh? For the younger people listening in, you know, he's been at this for quite a while, right? Yes, yes, yeah. In 1972, Murdoch, who tends to back winners, had backed the ALP. However, a US diplomatic report released just last year stated that in January 1975, Murdoch advised his editors to kill Whitlam. That's figuratively speaking, of course. It wasn't. Although the other might have been an option had Whitlam decided not to go. Yeah, if he'd, if he'd done it again, though. That's right. That's well, right. He was they killed. Shot him. Yeah, I never know. But I do believe it was figuratively speaking, uh, uh, you know, in, in mm. those, at that time, mm-hmm. anyway. November the 11th, 1975, was a Tuesday. I remember being in high school and the word was spread that Whitlam had been replaced by Fraser as Prime Minister. We had quite a few left-leaning teachers at that time, so there was a good deal of shock at the news. I also have a strong memory of putting on my older brother's fake leather brown jacket and going to the city square some days, it could have been some weeks, my memory isn't that good, I was only young, some days or possibly some weeks later. Even though I was standing far back in the crowd on Swanson Street, I could see a tall figure with a white head bobbing through the crowd from the left, the Collins Street side. Whitlam stood 193 centimetres tall, six foot four in the old money, and he was very proud. Many people reacted to him with a sense of awe. I can't remember any any of his speech, but it would no doubt have gone along the lines of maintain your rage, which was the ALP's slogan following the dismissal. Despite the fact that so many Completely people... Completely deceitful. Completely Sorry? deceitful, given the moment the, the coup actually happened. They went around telling people to keep calm. 
keep, yeah, well, yeah, I was only maintaining your rage. Your rage, forget was, your rage, was in fact the message. I think so, yeah. Despite the fact that so many people were in an agitated state and ready to take serious political action, the Labour leadership chose to temper this feeling. They chose to hold the working class away from power instead of galvanising the working class to take power. Alongside Whitlam at this time stood his deputy Frank Crean, his treasurer Bill Hayden and the head of the ACTU, Bob Hawke. The ACTU, unlike today, at that time was a very powerful organisation. They could at the very least have called a snap general strike of Australian workers. They could at the very least have made the machinery of a Fraser Care government unworkable. They didn't. Bob Hawke made clear where he stood with this statement. It's quite a long statement, this one. This is Hawke. We must not substitute violence in the streets and anarchy for the processes of democracy. Of course I am upset, but it is not just a question of a Labour government appearing to fall. What has happened appearing today... Appearing to fall? Appearing to fall. Didn't actually fall. No, appeared to fall. What has happened today could unleash forces in this country the like of which we have never seen. We are on the edge of something quite terrible and therefore... It is important that the Australian people respond to leadership. Right, isn't it? Uh, talk about talking with a forked tongue. Sheer arrogance. Uh, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's autocratic. I mean, you know whose leadership he's referring to. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And what Listen to me. You don't understand that's me. Right. No, listen Do to nothing. me. You Do nothing. Yeah. The reformist Labour leadership, leadership huffed and puffed about maintaining the rage but in actuality advised only that people vote Labour at the next election, which was held on December the 13th, 1975. By that time, of course, the moment had passed. With a massive media support, the coalition won a landslide. They increased their seats from 61 to 91 in the lower house. The ALP went from 66 down to 36, their biggest federal defeat ever. So the, the, the ALP ended up a little more than a third well, of the Well, if you don't fight, seats. you lose. It was smashed. This week, the Australian Labour Party is commemorating the dismissal by selling Gough Whitlam tea towels for $15 each. Aaron Swan, the head of ALP Digital, once again asked that people maintain the rage. If the ALP truly wanted not just to maintain the rage, as they say, but to maintain the legacy of Whitlam's achievements, they'd follow some of his more progressive policies, which I mentioned earlier. As it is in 2015, they're little more than a pale imitation of the people they say they stand in opposition to. End of my No, view. good. No, no, uh, good, good, good stuff, good stuff. Well, it, it, shows, it showed to me, it exposed completely to me the ALP, that the ALP is not even prepared to fight for its own government. So to imagine that they're prepared to fight for the working class... And so many dream. people were. So many people were willing to actually do something. Oh, the ordinary working class people Something needed to be work. done. Of course. You know. I mean, that, they'd, they'd had two elections in the space of less than three years, 1972 and 1974. Oh, the working class were given no chance to defend the ALP, Mm. and the ALP didn't want to be defended. Because when he talks about 
it will unleash forces mm. the like of we know. What he's talking about there is the fearsome prospect of the working the class. The working class actually getting close act, to power. Getting close to power or even taking action. Mm. That, of course, the working class taking action in a united way is the nightmare of every capitalist. Mm. And you must listen to the leadership. You know, it's all about, hey, put... Settle down. You're only people. What do you know? You that's know. right. That's this right. statement by Hawke, which I'd never seen before, you know, that article. Yeah, I did, yeah. This statement here by Hawke condemns them right there. You can see through just with that short statement there. Exactly. Of exactly. what they're frightened of and what they really want. Whose side are you on, brother? And we saw whose side they were on. Well, now, that, that led in time. It meant, of course, that when the next Labour government came in in 1983... They had learnt the lesson oh. of 1975. No longer were they going to embark on anything radical whatsoever. In fact, they were all set to do the job for big business. They adopted neoliberalism. They started privatising. They started uh, de- devaluing the currency, uh, you know, suspending the currency, um, putting it onto the market, etc., etc., to a point where social inequality rose dramatically under Labour. And continued, of course, under the Liberals. In fact, these days, social inequality has risen sharply in Australia over the past 10 years under both Labor and the Liberals, and the gap will worsen in the next decade. This was a finding of the National Centre for Social and Economic Modelling, which released a report in September. It demolishes the myth of a relatively egalitarian society where most people benefit from a protracted mining boom. I mean, that was the story, that we all benefit from the mining boom. Noticeably, the Labor Party was in office for six years during the past decade. It was responsible, the Labor Party, for an assault on social services while also backing the drive by the corporate elite to start cutting wages and working conditions. Labor's pro-market policies laid the basis for deeper attacks by the coalition government that took office in 2013. This report I've referred to, called Living Standard Trends in Australia, notes that living standards rose amid the mining boom, but, quote, that growth was not shared evenly by all. Indeed, the gap in living standards between the richest and the poorest grew by 13% during this period, not, not abated. The project projects a further 10.4 increase in the gap between rich and poor in the coming decade, with, of course, the most disadvantaged groups experiencing a decline in living standards. During the next 10 years, the top 20% of higher income earners are projected to improve living standards by 5.9%, while the bottom 20% are going to have a decline of 4.5%. In particular, Alawi and single-parent pension families will experience a serious reduction in living standards. Alawi families are those who rely on welfare benefits like the appalling unemployment, new start payments and youth allowances. The top 20%, those with an annual income of 140000 or more, saw their living standards rise by 28.4% over the past decade, compared to just 15% for the poorest 20% of households on annual incomes of 23000 or less. Living standards for median households on 69000 grew by 21%. Australia's top percent, this is in 19, 2012, 
Australia's top 1%, made up of only 180,000 individuals out of 23 million, with an average income of just under 400,000 per year, enjoyed 7.7% of total income. That is, 1% enjoys 7.7% of total income. Most of this, of course, it wasn't even distributed, most of this went to the top 0.5%, who accounted for just 5% of total income. So 0.5% of the population have an income of 5%. The claims of Julia Gillard's government that its decision in 2013 to shift single parents off parenting allowances into the lower New Start benefits once their youngest child turned eight was an incentive for them to enter the workforce. Not true. The report states that workforce participation rates of single parents did not change after 2006. So this was rubbish done by Gillard to attack the poor. Earlier this year, Anglicare released rent affordability data that underscores the levels of financial stress facing single parents and New Start recipients. The figures show that over the past 10 years, the cost of rents have gone up by 54%, and out of the 65,000 properties surveyed online, a single parent had only 165 housing options. Right out of the 65,000 properties, only 165 housing options were available for them, and only 10%, only 10 rather, 10 of the 65,000 properties uh, surveyed online were available for a person on Newstart. In other words, we have a new large class of exceptionally poor people. The largest welfare of court was to some pension families who lose all or some of their part pension. According to previous research, the 2015-16 budget, combined with the 2014-15 measures, will inflict $18 billion in spending cuts over the four-year forward estimates. The latest report shows that the brunt of the savings will be shouldered by the most disadvantaged in society. This is before we even take into account a rise in the GST, which is uh, scandalous. While the 20 bottom percent of household incomes would account for 33% of the projected savings, this is the savings the governments make, the top 20% would only account for 7%. So, faced with a financial crisis, 33% of the savings will come from the bottom 20%, the top 20% only 7%. As a share of income, the bottom 20% lose around 3%, while the top, the loss for the top 20% is 0.1. Not only did the previous Labor government, which was maintained in office by the Greens, commence the assault, both parties voted for the Coalition's main budget appropriation bills and have since struck deals with the government to pass key features of its welfare cuts with only slight modification. Now, I want to have a little glance at what's happening in England because it's becoming quite interesting. Uh, You might remember that a a a fellow who styles himself as a socialist, Jeremy Jeremy Corbyn, and regardless of his personal views, he's operating within the Labour Party, which, like the Australian Labour Party, is essentially a corporate party. But now uh, he has been... um, 
he has been attacked, Jeremy Corden, by the head of the UK Armed Forces. This is the second time. Yeah. yeah it, it, it was a, it, some guy came out, spoke against him. Uh, he said if he becomes Prime Minister, then you know, he'd take up arms against him or something. Right back when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader. Right, right. Well, that's continued on. Ago. So much from the neutrality of the military. The Chief of Defence Staff, Sir Nicholas Horton, <clears throat> asked by the BBC's Andrew Maher about Corbyn's statement. Corbyn made the statement that he would never authorise the use of nuclear weapons. Well, says Sir, Sir Nicholas... Well, uh, well, it would worry me if this th- that thought were translated into power. Horton had also already told the media that the UK was letting down its allies by not bombing in Syria. <laughs> Rather than censor Horton, the government rushed to support him. This is the Conservative government. With a spokesman for the Prime Minister, David Cameron, stating that, quote, as the principal military advisor of the government, it was reasonable for Horton to talk about how we maintain the credibility of one of our most important tools in our armoury. Because they're saying that if you say, well, we will never, if we come to power, we will never use nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. to them, where's the deterrent? If you say you'll never use it, that that was the argument uh, argument being made. Well, you, then again, I mean, you know, if, if, if Corbyn is saying this, then why not go to the next stage and say, let's everybody scrap all these weapons? Well, let's have arms limitation talks yes. amongst the great powers like we used to have. Well, yes. I mean, are they going to use these nuclear weapons? I hope not. No. In September, the Sunday Times carried comments from a senior-serving general that in the event of Corbyn becoming Prime Minister, there would be a very real prospect of a mutiny. Uh-oh. He went on to say, you could see a major break in convention with senior generals directly and publicly challenging Corbyn over vital important policy decisions such as Trident, pulling out of NATO, and any plans to emasculate or shrink the size of the armed forces. You might ask, who's running the show? Mm. Is it the elected representatives, mm. or is it, as we know, the capitalist class whom the military serves? There is a big military-industrial complex there. Yes, of course. On particular note was The Guardian's editorial on Monday, which stated... There's not been a military coup and barely a military mutiny of any consequence in this country's modern democratic history. That's why the remarks about Jerry Corbyn by the Chief of the Defence Staff might be a cause of concern. The paper's warning directed to the ruling class is basically this, that the illusions in democracy that are vital to the preservation of capitalism are being undermined by direct political interference by the military. In other words, they have to keep selling us the idea that this is a democratic country, that your vote is important as any industrialist, whereas we know, in fact, that Murdoch, who's not even a citizen of this country, has more power than 10 million Australians, that he controls, what, he and Fairfax control something like 80% of the the press. But all these illusions about the neutrality and that uh, Parliament is supreme that the military will respect the democratic will are rubbish because the military, like the state, is there to defend the capitalist class. But it's necessary they, that they maintain these illusions and that you buy them. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's very similar to, to uh, what I was speaking before about Whitlam, you know, when the army was in standby, where the, the, the intelligence forces of the British, the Americans, mm. and the, Australia, mm. the Australians, mm. because, I mean, you know, if you look back to the Red on ASIO, early yes. in Whitlam's term, you know, they were all there. It was quite obvious what side they were on. Mm. They were mm. against this reformist Labour government, and they look at someone like Corbyn and think, well, you could be another one. But democracy means nothing to these people. The fact that no. they're not elected to do anything, they're not elected full no. stop, but it doesn't inhibit them at all. They're the public, public servants. Well, I mean, these bloody great generals. That's the you know, myth. That's I saw the them myth. back in the Melbourne Cup day. I mean, the, the, the general who became the governor general. These are public servants. Every penny they get has come from us. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. The public declarations of Horton and the anonymous threats of a mutiny must be taken of, as a warning of the growing dangers faced by working people. What the Guardian describes as speculation is in fact the reality of political and social relations under capitalism. The impartiality of the armed forces that Corbyn insists must be preserved has always been a fiction. Engels, Engels 100 years, 150 years ago, described the state as being special bodies of armed men, identified by him as the essential instrument for preserving the rule of capital. Mm. That if democracy, parliamentary democracy, looks like interfering with the prerogatives of the capitalist class, it will be got rid of. Mm -hmm. And we saw that in Chile and we saw that in the Canberra coup. Because the army is there not only for external threats, but by the internal threat posed by any serious political opposition that emerges in the working class. Under today's conditions, this fiction can no longer be maintained. For decades, all the major powers have waged an unending series of wars of colonial conquest in Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq and now Syria. Beginning with the putsch organised by Washington in the Ukraine, NATO has been placed on a collision course with Russia, while in the east, the United States is attempting to forge a military alliance, including Japan and Australia, against China. The explosion of imperialist violence demands a frontal assault on the democratic rights in the form of a raft of anti-terror legislation, undermining civil liberties and the intense surveillance of virtually every man, woman and child in the world. So the day that the illusion that we are a democracy that we have any say is, I think, falling falling apart. That once every three years, we're given the choice as to which member of, which supporters of the capitalist class we are to elect. Parliament is not neutral. It's an instrument that was set up by the capitalist class historically and maintained by the capitalist class as a democratic facade. The real punch, if you like, behind it is bodies of armed men which is the state, which, as Engels described, is simply an executive committee of the ruling class. Now, you wanted to announce something before we go to the listeners. Yeah, well, just following on from what you're saying, and uh, I've got this um, flyer for a public housing form, form coming up, and in this it says, um, democracy is more than voting every three to four years. It's about becoming involved in discussion and social and political movements to ensure every Australian 
receives a fair go. So uh, there's a public housing forum coming up, and it's on Tuesday, this Tuesday, the 17th of November, at the Neighbourhood House, 26 Mahogany Avenue in Frankston North, and it runs between 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock. Now, the speakers will be speakers for the first hour, and for the second hour, there will be a question and answer segment. And the speakers include Bruce Bilson, who's the former small business minister in the Abbott government, Paul Edbrook, who's a Labour state law MP, Nina Springle of the Victorian Greens, Glenn Aitken, that's A-I-T-K-E-N, not Atkins as it puts down here. He's a Frankston local councillor. April Bragg, who's the convener of housing for the Aged Action Group and someone you'll know. Dr. Joseph Toscano, who is the national convener of public interest before corporate interests, PIPSI, which is organising the meeting. So, um, yeah, this is a little bit more about what real democracy is, and that's this Tuesday, 17th November, at the Neighbourhood House in Frankston North, starting at 5 o'clock. Look, if real democracy, the capitalist class rests on your apathy, on you doing nothing. Of you thinking democracy consists of every three years you having a vote, and in the rest, leave it to my friends. And leave with it this, to the this... capitalist class, and if you decide otherwise, we've got the army to, to put you right. And this is what Hawke was saying. It is important that the Australian people respond to leadership. The Australian, but there was a big chunk of the Australian people at that time. Well, had he provided you? any? Had he provided any leadership? It might be an option. But he said, "Don't do anything." Stay at home. Keep, Keep cool. me in my parliamentary seat, That's right. earning my massive pension. And do not allow, the biggest fear of all, do not allow the struggle to go beyond Parliament. Let's keep it confined to Parliament. Let's make sure that all your protests are put into getting the Labour government mm. re-elected. I remember the rally at the uh, MCG on workers' rights prior to Kevin Rudd coming in in 07. Mm. And... Everyone was upset about work choices. Mm. Well, the meeting started with playing the national anthem mm. and then we got ALP after ALP who basically said, don't struggle, just vote for us. And just vote for us. And these are the people who had led the neoliberal counter-revolution beginning in the 80s. I mean, mm. there's been no difference between Labour and Liberal. Labour started most of the things. It privatised education. It started... It's it's sorry. It's introduced fees for for education. It's it started the neo Leo program where everything has become subject to the market, and where public interest doesn't count at all. But you see, the way that the Labour Party leaders—I mean, Sean's a good example of it now—the way they speak when they're on, in opposition is very, very different from the way they would act if they were in government. A, you know, I mean, it requires, it's not just hypocrisy, it requires an incredible piece of acting because they will huff and they'll puff. I mean, Kim Beasley used to do it to a ridiculous extent. You'd have to just laugh at it. Huff and puff about what, how, you know, they're going to battle for the battlers and they're going to take it up to the Tories. And they get into government, and what happens? Oh, well, I don't think, even More in opposition, even in opposition, they were just. Do they say they do? Oh, well. They say they will. Oh, yes, of course they will. Of course they will. And they, they emphasise the difference. I was watching that. I, I don't know, go on. But I was watching, um, oh, I forget, John, uh, what's his name on the ABC? John Oliver. John Cat Clark and oh, um, yes, yes, and yes, Daw, yes. you know, and they had a, it was an interview with Mark Latham, supposedly Mark Latham, asking about what's the difference? Can you tell the difference between Labour and Liberal? And Latham had it in his pocket, but it slipped out of his pocket, fell on the carpet, and it was the same colour as the carpet. And 
<laughs> right, right. And he said, how big is the difference? Oh, it's about as big as an atom. A very big atom, though. Right, right. <laughs> right, right. The rest of the sketch was just sort of scurrying around in the carpet looking for right. the difference. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.